So just reading from, from Ephesians 4, chapter 17 to 32, the new life. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbour, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer let the fire, doing honest work with his own hands, that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and slander tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Thanks, Peyton. Good morning, everybody. Good to be up here again. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Andrew, and as you probably heard, for a short time longer. And it's my pleasure to share the word with you this morning. It's interesting that we've got interactive um, things this morning because we're going to be a little bit interactive in the message today too. And, um, but I don't have things to give you like um, a crate of things to give you like Roxanne does. But you have... Uh, in your capacity right now, what I'm going to ask you to do. One of the things I'm going to ask you to do is, and I've got a, one or two places in the middle of the message, but not to do with the message, but we're in, this, we're in Ephesians and we've been talking about the church last week and today we're talking about ourselves and next week we're talking about the world and we're going through that. And it made me think, you know, every time after the service we get up and say, you know, if you would like prayer, we're here, right? How many of you have heard that before? How many of you have heard that more than 100 times before? Right, you have. So this, go on, you can, you know, that's on your feet sort of thing. Why don't you just to turn around and let your eyes just gaze on the people in the church. Just turn around, just turn around, have a look who's around. Yep, you've seen who's around, you've got your mind's picture. Okay, sit down again. My challenge to you, or our challenge to you today, is I'm not going to ask you if you would like prayer to somebody that you might have caught their eye or the Holy Spirit might have told you, or God might have told you. I want you to go up to someone after church and say, I would like to pray for you. Who's up for that? Like I said last week, I guarantee the people aren't going to say, no way, because this is church. We don't do that in church, right? But I want you to go to someone, and it, look, it doesn't have to be a long prayer. Please don't give them. Just say, I want to pray for you this week. And it might have been something in the message. It might have been something, I just want to pray that you have a great week. It could be a 30-second prayer. But I would like to see us pray for each other this week. That's my challenge. And the heck, I'll be watching. So I can say stuff like that. I'm being gone soon. You can fire me, you know. But today, we're in Ephesians. We've been looking at Ephesians, the riches and responsibilities. And the first three chapters have been, we're all about the riches that God gave us. 
You know, and, and the things that and Paul talks, you know, he effuses and just goes on about how great the riches are that God has given us, how much he's done for us, just how privileged we are. And, and he's talking to the Ephesians, but we can extrapolate that to us. And the second half of the book, he starts talking about the responsibilities. And we started looking at that at the start of chapter four last week. So Ephesians is kind of what God in Christ has done for us. And the second half is what we do for God. In chapter 4 and the first part of chapter 5, these, these three um, sermons, Paul talks about three kind of contexts, if you like, or, or, or three walks or thoughts of Christ as saved children. Uh, three areas that we operate and, and think and move in and places that we get to express this new life, how we are to be in each. What's different? What's our call? You know, we've got the body of Christ last week, we've got... This week, ourselves, and next week, we're looking at the world, our relationship with others, self, and the world. In the first half of chapter 4, we saw Paul addressing the church, the body. Remember, we talked about unity. It's not necessarily uniformity and unity in the body like this, but unity in the body of Christ, um, you know, citywide, worldwide, um, those that know Jesus. He encouraged unity because in the end, we all have one Lord, one faith, one Christ, and we all go to One Hope Church. That's what it says in there. Well, it doesn't say church, but it says we all have one hope. But unity is our testimony we talked about last week, that, that it's what speaks to the world about who Christ is. It's how the world sees God. And God, he doesn't necessarily see the, the God through uniformity, through it all doing it the same way, but in unity, that's how the world sees God. That's our testimony. And we saw that unity in the body takes courage, doesn't it? It takes surrender and it takes submission sometimes. But it also takes, it's also the place that we grow up in the body, isn't it? We mature as we allow those various gifts that, that Michael was just talking about to, to, to be eminent, to, to manifest in the community. And as we submit ourselves to them, we flourish. The church flourishes. We allow them to teach us and to build us up. My iPad's just had a hissy fit. We're back. Gave you a moment to remember last week. Paul addressed the community, our relationship with others. But now reading today in, chapter, in verse 17 to 32, Paul shifts more to the individual, to you and I. And this makes a whole lot of sense because, after all, the community is made up of individuals. We are a community, but we're made up of individuals. And we're influenced by individuals. And um, we're influenced by the individual's journey and the individual's process. And Paul is reminding the Ephesians, and he's speaking to those that have, you know, those that, that the Jews, but definitely the Gentiles that have come to Christ, um, and also, perhaps there was a few Romans that had, had come to Christ. He's talked to them about having a new life. Things were not as they were anymore. This is a new life. And translated, that means it must change their life. It must change the way that they see life and the way that they live. It's a new life. It's not the old life. So let's have a look what he says to the church and let's also apply it to ourselves. He begins by saying, now this. I look in a few other versions in King James. It's the good old therefore. 
And we know about the good old therefore, don't we? In the NIV, it says, so this, so this, kind of like so, or hear this, if you like. It's a kind of hear this. This, Paul is saying, is going to apply to what I've been saying, and these are the implications for you, and it's important. And he starts by saying, you must no longer walk or live, if you like, as the Gentiles do. Again, in the King James Version, it says, as the other Gentiles do, and other versions, as the rest of the Gentiles do. Because remember, he's speaking to Gentiles that are now part of the new life, which is you and I. No longer walk or live as the other Gentiles do. Don't look back on that lifestyle. Don't long to go back to it. Um, it seems attractive. It seems profitable. They're not being oppressed. They're getting the good jobs and whatever the, in Ephesians, the, the struggle that the church was going through. It seems attractive to doing well, and, and you seem to be coming under pressure as the church in Ephesus. But don't look back on that lifestyle. Don't look back at the opportunities now lost because of your faith in Jesus. Don't long for it. Be careful not to have your foot in two worlds. Why? And he says, because it's futile. I think we've got a slider there. The word futile means incapable of producing any useful result. Pointless. Anyone ever done something that was totally futile to do? I have. You know, we know what futile is. And Paul uses that word uh, on purpose. There's a reason for that word. He says, why would you not? It's going nowhere. It's futile. Although it looks good, in the end, it's actually pointless. You know, they might be successful. They might be working well in society. They might be selling all their little, little, plat, little statues that they were doing. And they might look like they've got the biggest homes, best jobs, the best social circle. But let me tell you that their life is actually effort is pointless. There is no eternal fruit. A commentary that I read said this, The thought is not that an unregenerate minds are empty. It's not that they're dumb, that they can't think or they're not smart at all. It's, it is that they are filled with things that lead to nothing. You know, when you look at the world and we see uh, the people that are making big money or the people that seem to be successful or the people that are doing well, do you ever think of that and do we think, actually, they're filled with things that lead to nothing? It's going nowhere. It's not profitable, not in an eternal sense. It's not going anywhere. Paul goes on, he says, in fact, they're even alienated from God because their hearts are, reject they are hard. They've rejected the offer of the new life. So the alien. Now, an alien is not recognized. God does not recognize them. Wow. And then he goes on and using words like callous. Anyone ever had calluses? When you tap them, you can't feel anything? Because it's hard. There's no more feeling. And Paul uses the word callous. They're callous. They don't feel anymore. They don't, they're not susceptible to the word. He said, but that's not you anymore. That's not your identity. It's not the way you learnt Christ. Not the way you were taught. You were taught to put off the old man, the old self, that you were once like that, which is hard, which is callous, which is corrupt, and be renewed in the spirit. And put on, he uses that language, put on the new self or the new man, if you like. And this new man, this new self, is modelled on, is made in the likeness, is just like Christ himself. 
there's that thing again. You know how we've been talking about where Paul alludes in a number of different ways that we can be filled with the fullness of God. Be like Christ. With yourself that is modelled on Christ himself. You've been set free. Now live in accordance with that. Live like that. You know, think of a prisoner that is released from prison after a long time. <clears throat> and he's still wearing his prison clothes. He's still acting like a prisoner. He's still lining up for food. He's still locking himself in his bedroom for 23 hours a day. And his clothes and live like he's free now. Don't live like he's a prisoner anymore. That's what Paul's saying. You're no longer a prisoner and everything about your life changes. Because you've been changed, united to Christ, that now must affect everything in your life, every part of your life. It's got to make a difference. It has to. Paul's language, just this, it, it just shows how radical it is to become a Christian. For the Gentiles back then, and even for some Romans, how radical it was for them to become a follower of Christ. And Paul's language helps us to see that. It's not just, well, I used to be a gossip you know, and, and now I'm trying not to do that anymore. I don't do that anymore. It's not just, ah, oh, I used to cheat on my tax forms a little bit or cut corners here, and, and, but, but I'm not going to do that anymore because this is the new self. Or I used to be negative all the time and now, and you fill it in. You can, it, it's not just, it is those things, but it's much more. It's actually a transformation of our personality. Fundamentally, Paul says that for a Christian, there needs to be a break with isn't merely added to the old life. Our old life dies and he becomes our new life. We look, we act, we respond and we engage totally differently than we did before. You know, you've heard stories about this new Christian. You know, I've told you stories about, I've told you the story once about our friend Richard who was a, who we met in Amsterdam when I worked in, in the Netherlands and he was a, he became a Christian. He was living the gay lifestyle as a gay Olympic, uh, Olympian and he became a Christian. I've told that story here before. And he was just radically changed when he accepted Jesus in his life. And time and time again, he would meet people from his old life that actually didn't recognize him because he was so different, almost even physically. You know, and it's a bit like that. You know, you've probably heard of new Christians and their ex-friends meet them and they think, well, something's different here. You're... You're a new person. You're unrecognisable. You're not the same person anymore. That's what it's supposed to be like. That's how it should be. How does it work in your life? Do we sometimes look at the other Gentiles, at their life, at what they do, what they have? Do we find it attractive? Do we sometimes long for the things that, that those other Gentile people that... that aren't followers of Christ, seem to be successful. Some of the things they seem to have or enjoy. You know, I can remember growing up as a kid. And look, you know, I, I confess even oftentimes I think, oh, wouldn't it be great if you just had every weekend to do whatever you like? You weren't bound to a church or anything like that. Wouldn't it be great if you didn't have to, you know, you, could, you didn't have to do devotions every day or find time for that sort of stuff. This is, sound, this is not confession time, by the way. But, you know, you, you, or wouldn't, you know, why, why, what if I didn't, Tithe to the church. I could put more money on my mortgage. I could, I could do this and, and that sort of stuff. And as a kid, I used to look at other kids that would, would, you know, on Sundays they could go and, you know, in Sundays when I was a little kid, you just had to wear nice clothes and, and make sure you didn't get dirty and, and, you know. But other kids could just do the normal things and, and play sport and, and do crazy things. 
And that's the kind of thing, isn't it? And it's, so, it's really subjective. It's really uh, it, it's sneaky, isn't it? You just sort of look and you sort of long a bit. And think, oh, wouldn't it? I'd like to live like they live. Do we live with our feet in two worlds sometimes? We look at the successes that the world can offer. And then we look at the call to eternal and new life and living. Do we believe that the pursuits of those that don't know Jesus, do we even believe that their pursuits are actually futile? That they're not going anywhere? We admire people. You know, we look up at people and think, wow, they've done well. And the old saying, hasn't he done well? But do we actually really believe that, you know what, for all that, it's all futile? In comparison to living for Christ, they lead nowhere. But we often can't see that because we are blinded. That's one of the enemy's tools. We get blinded to that sort of thing. We don't notice that we're just beginning to long to have what other people have or, or pour our resources or, or time or, or efforts into things that are futile, oftentimes. That's the enemy's weapon. He makes sure that we can't see that. You see, putting on the new self isn't just changing a few behaviours. It's not just volunteering for a few noble things. In this church, you can volunteer for a lot of noble things. It's not just attending church as often as you can or life group as much as you can. It's actually getting rid of the whole old way of living, the whole old way of doing things, getting rid of the old aspirations that you have. Putting on the new life or the new self is living an examined life. It means you look at every part of your life, all of you, all of your decisions. Ask the question, is this what Jesus wants? Pretty radical, isn't it? But that's the new life. That's putting on Christ and saying, is this what Christ wants for me? Really? Wow. The new person lives Life determined by what, not what society's norms are, not tradition, not habit, not selfish desires, not, well, you know, I've always done it like this, or we've always done it like that, so yeah. you now have a new purpose to everything you do. And that's what Paul's doing. And he's talked about them in chapter 1. He's talked about us being holy and set apart. This is the, de- this is the definition of taking on Christ, the new self. That's huge. What might that mean for you right now? For your life? For your direction? What might it mean if you stopped for everything and said, is this really what Jesus wants? Is this actually what Christ would want me to think, to do, or to act right now? Visions. You know, I started thinking of that this week and I started making a list and I had to stop because it got confronting. It would do us all well. As we often give thanks for salvation, we often give thanks for eternal life, and we often give thanks for a new life, and that's good, but it would do us well to look at the implications of that new life and see whether we need realignment. I know I do. So here's the first challenge. If you're game, thinking about that, thinking about some of the things that that challenge you in terms of, you know, do you look at the world or do you, do you stop and ask, is this really what Jesus would want? Or are there areas in your life where you think, gee, I need to ask that in that area more? 
I want you to, I'm going to give you three minutes to turn to two other people. And if you've got the courage to share, hey, this is, where I, this is a part of my life where I should do that more, and just to pray quickly with each other. But you've only got three minutes. So you don't have to do it, but if you've got the courage, I want you to do that. I'm going to give you three minutes right now. And if you're not going to do it, just hum quietly. No maracas. All right. I may have given you some fodder for the challenge that I gave you earlier. You might be able to continue that or pray for them or something like that. It really is interesting when you start thinking, is this really what Jesus would want me to do, have, dream for, plan for? Is is it really? Is this a new self? And sometimes it takes realignment. And I think that's okay. You know, we, we, you know, it's also encouraging. There's a great encouragement in being called to, be, to put on the new self because we can only do that because of Jesus' work in salvation. So there's huge encouragement. You know, we're saved and, and we're, we're justified, but sanctification, it can take time. Time and time again, I need to ask myself, oh, maybe I'm off, offline here. Maybe this is not, not right. And I get an opportunity to change that. Because of Jesus' work in me, because I'm called to put on a new self. And we can only do that because of Jesus' work in salvation. We can only do that because we're totally accepted and loved. We don't need to go through life proving ourselves. You don't need to, anymore, you don't need to, like the other Gentiles, you don't need to work really hard and get the best degree in the world, or that's a good thing to do. But you don't, it's not about proving yourself to making your way in the world and saying, I want to be something because you already are. You're everything you could ever be in Christ. You're totally accepted. You don't need to go through life proving yourselves. The old person did, but we now don't. What a relief. I no longer need to take my identity or my value out of what I can do or be or achieve or who I associate with, what social set I belong to. The new person is completely able to be in God's presence and completely prepared for eternity with God living in this world. So, but Paul goes on, doesn't he? He goes on in verse 24 with another therefore, another because, and so, because you've been saved and because you've been commanded to put on the new self, there are changes and these are some very basic things and they might be a bit obvious, but they're important. And he rattles off a quick little list, doesn't he? He says, you speak truth with your neighbour. Now, that's not brutal truth. That's not, gee, you know, you've got a big pimple on your nose. Or, boy, you could use a bit more makeup. You know, things like That's not what he's talking about. It's not brutal truth. Because he says we belong to each other. We're members. And so we, we treat each other well. But we, that's why we actually speak the truth to one another. What he means is we're actually fair dinkum with each other. We're open and real with each other. We don't try to be what we aren't. We're genuine with each other. Speaking the truth or living the truth, we're not trying to pump our own tyres or someone else's tyres. We're just genuine. And there's a stack of protection in that, isn't there? When you know that you're in a community where you speak truth to one another, where it feels safer, doesn't it? Where you can be protected. It's like... Um, 
you want to know the truth about you want to know the truth about some of your actions or some of your the things that you're doing you want someone to say hey mate is that a good idea oh, i'm not sure that's a, you know you want to be pulled up on some things you know it's like the nerve endings in our hands when you put your hand in a fire if you didn't have nerve endings you'd do it again you want to know oh nerving that's not a good thing to do you want the community to do that he says get angry you might get angry but don't let it last don't let the enemy use it to destroy anything. People are different. People do hurt each other. That's a reality. And that happens in the church, in the school, in the family. It happens everywhere because we're human beings and we're still on the road to complete, defend each other. And anger is a natural response. You get angry, I get angry, we get angry when we get offended or hurt. The devil's work is to accuse and divide the family of God and to try to sow discord among them. So when we harbour that anger in our heart, we're actually doing the devil's work for him. We're helping him out. We're our anger more than we value the unity of the body of Christ. And so Paul says, don't, you know, get angry, but don't, don't let it last. Deal with it. Sort it out. And, and go back to that truth thing. You know, deal with it in community. Be honest with each other. You see, because one inhibits the kingdom if you hang on to the anger. And that's how the old self would react. And the other grows the kingdom. It's a sign of a new self. Work and be generous. Don't steal anymore. Not that I think any of us run around stealing stuff. But the message is, you know, don't thieve. Don't, don't do things honestly. Work and be generous. The old self might rot the system every now and then. You know how that works, don't you? You try to do, avoid work or do as little way that you've done stuff all, all day. You know, that's the goal and people are proud of that. You'll see it on social media, you know. I've got, you know, the old self might do that. Try to avoid work, do as little as possible. The old self might work to build their own wealth, but the new self is honest, works hard, so as to share the fruit with those who need help. Simple, right? We've heard that stacks of times. We just took an offering for the care team. Drop your hand if you gave generously. No, don't do that. I'm just, you know. It's simple, isn't it? Work and be generous. But it was so countercultural in that day to the Ephesians. It screamed different. Because all they did, all the Gentiles did beforehand, was try to make it in society. It was a survival of the fittest in a place like that. You had to make it. Pretty countercultural today, too, isn't it? Work hard, be honest, give money away. Just as countercultural today. Speak positively in a way that builds up people, that builds up situations. And that's harder than it sounds because we're surrounded by negativity, particularly nowadays. By people trying to pull us down. You've just got to watch. We're in the middle. We're in, we haven't even announced the election yet, but they're going full on campaigning. And what is most of what they talk about? How bad the other person is. The person's useless. How, gee, you know, they can't lead the country. We're surrounded in everything by negativity, by people trying to pull down to discredit people, generally to destroy others. Happens in media, and happens in social media. It's become the way people survive. The fittest, the smartest, the quickest, the most savvy in business. The new self wants to build people up. 
even those that are different than us, even those that we might not agree with or they wouldn't agree with us because that's what grace is. The new self wants to build up people. Don't be bitter, malicious. Don't clamour. Anyone wonder what that means? Don't clamour. And in our language today, that would be we would use one-upmanship. Don't try to one-up yourself and clamour for position and one-up yourself above the other person. Don't slander. Put it away from yourself, Paul says. Distance yourself from that stuff. Don't associate with it. Again, that is so much easier said than to do, isn't it? That you can avoid the, the odd gossip or you can avoid that, that, that bit of malicious talk or, or even being a bit bitter. Or It's hard to maintain integrity in that area sometimes. Aristotle defined bitterness as the resentful spirit that refuses reconciliation. A resentful spirit that refuses reconciliation. I can remember talking to someone some years ago and there's a big family of about 12 kids. I think they were all boys but one girl. And these, son, these, these boys, they, there was com- competition amongst them all the time in all sorts of areas. They were all builders, but they all had competition in the church and everything. And one guy, and it was only about 10 years ago, that would be 2010, one guy could still tell me word for word what one of his brothers said to him in 1972 and he still didn't forgive him. Wow. Now, we might think that's sad, but boy, I need to check my heart sometimes. What about bitterness? A resentful spirit that refuses reconciliation. You see, the new self enables us to control these kind of emotions. And he says, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted. And that's easy to say too, be kind to everybody all the time. Next line is really radical. Forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave you. Wait. That's pretty big. If I am to forgive you and those in my life the same way that Christ forgave me, I don't know about you, but I'm not great at this. Yet Paul says that's a key feature of this new life in Christ. We may remember the amazing way that God forgives us and we're coming up to Easter and we're going to actually be, our thoughts are going to be focused on it for a couple of, for a couple of days there, aren't we? It's wrong for us to withhold forgiveness to those that have wronged us. If I am to forgive in the same way that I'm forgiven, what does that look like? What does God's forgiveness look like? Just a few things. God holds back his anger a long time until he forgives. He bears with us for a long time, even though we provoke him. What else does God's forgiveness look like? God reaches out to bad people to woo them to himself and he attempts reconciliation with bad people. That's how God, what God's forgiveness looks like, does mine. God always makes the first move in forgiveness, trying to reconcile even though the guilty party is uninterested in forgiveness. God forgives sin knowing that we will sin again often in exactly the same way. God's forgiveness is so complete and so glorious that he grants adoption to former offenders. He lets them be part of his family. God in his forgiveness bore all of the penalty for the wrong that we did against him. He was innocent, yet he bore our guilt. God keeps reaching out to man for reconciliation, even when man rejects him again and again. 
God does not require a probationary period to receive his forgiveness. God's forgiveness offers complete restoration and honour. He loves, adopts, honours, associates and associates with those who once wronged him. He lets them back into his life. God put his trust in us and invites us to work with him as co-labourers after he's forgiven us, when he forgives us. That's what God's forgiveness looks like. Now we're supposed to forgive others the same way that God in Christ forgave us. First of all, praise God for his amazing forgiveness, right? For his love and his mercy for us. Second of all, I've got work to do. What about you? Go back over that list. Do we hold back our anger? Do we bear with the person that makes us angry even though they provoke us? Do we reach out to reconcile with people that we're angry with? Do we make the first move and try to reconcile? Even if that person at risk of, of hurting us again in the same way, do we still want to reach out in forgiveness? Do we let them back into our lives? Any damage that might come out of that? Do we hold people at a distance until they've proven that they're worthy of our forgiveness? A bit of a probationary period. I think I like you, but I'll, you know, I'll see how I go. Do we invite people to become part of our life and work along with us? I have work to do. Are there things that get list? The way that you operate, the way that you deal with people around you. Are there things or situations right now that need to change or tendencies right now that you have that need to change? Something that you might need to do something about. An area of forgiveness or letting other people back into your life or, or thinking differently about someone. I'm going to give you to allow the Holy Spirit to convict you if, if need be and, and you can just confess that and ask God to change that. We can take one minute right now. Our prayers. Amen. You're not doing these things just because it's novel to do something different in church. We're supposed to engage with the word like this. I can imagine that when, you know, they when whoever read Paul's letter to the Ephesians, that they were probably struck to the heart, some of these people, because they knew where they were doing wrong. And they would have to stop for a minute and think, oh, I need to fix that. I need to get this right. Remember, it's for the kingdom. So this is some of what the new self looks like, a changed life, a transformed life. This is what no longer living, longing to live as the other Gentiles looks like, and this is what will grow unity in Ephesus in the body, but also will glorify God and through our body. Now, if you were tracking along with me, if you're watching or listening, you'll notice that I skipped a verse, verse 30. Anyone notice that? Verse 30 said, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What does that mean? Basically what it means is it actually matters to God how we live. He actually cares. He feels. That's the, that's the relationship part of God. It matters to God how we live. Don't grieve or hurt the one that loves you so much. 
You see, when we live contrary to the way that God has designed us, the way that we ought to as saved and redeemed people, we throw it back in his face and, and, and that's got to hurt. Think about you have to love someone for them to be able to grieve you. If you don't love someone or like someone or don't have a relationship with someone, they probably can't hurt you, can they? They can't grieve you. We can grieve God because he loves us. You have to love someone to be grieved by them. People we don't necessarily love or have a relationship can't really grieve us. The ones that you're emotionally invested in, the ones that you care about. Think of a parent, you know, a wayward child, and, and you can be angry at that child for doing the wrong thing, but you're grieved mostly because they're hurting themselves, because they're not doing what's best for them, what you see as best for them. Love means that you're hurt and grieved not because it's a statement of who you are, but because of the best way. See, God has chosen to love us intimately. It took love to save us. This means that we can grieve him. He's not crippled by it as God. He's not sidetracked by it as God. But love means that he desires the best for us. And when we don't choose it, he feels. He grieves. When we choose to long for the old self or live some of the old way of life, when we live in two worlds and don't fully embrace the life of God, it grieves the Spirit of God. Spurgeon said this, The Holy Spirit's grief is not of a petty, oversensitive nature. He's grieved with us mainly for our own sakes, for he knows what misery sin will cost us. He grieves over us because he sees how much chastisement we incur and how much communion we lose. He grieves because of us. But the opposite to grief is joy. How does a child bring joy to the heart of a parent? Think about your kids if you've got kids. Think about people you love. How does a spouse or a good friend bring joy to another? When they're relaxed, when they're confident, when they're effective, when they're successful, when they're fulfilled, when they're secure. All of those things bring joy to our hearts when we see someone we love choosing well and doing well. Well, God as our Father desires the same. And that comes when we put on that new self and live the new life. His way. And through that, we can bring joy to the heart of the Father by living the way he designed. And that builds a kingdom. That's what the Ephesians, that was going to be the key for the Ephesians to be effective. And bringing glory to God. Now we see why Paul spends time being so specific with the Ephesians, because it matters to live the new life. And I said before, we're going to look at some of what the new life looks like, because Paul goes on in that third context how we engage with the world. And we'll see that when we go on next with Ephesians. And we'll see that we're called to, be, to imitate him, to be filled with him. There it is again, to be filled with God. Now, sometimes I look at the second half of Ephesians and I think, oh, I just wish I could hang around in the first half because that's way more fun, isn't it? That's full of warm fuzzies. That's beautiful. But this is encouraging too. That we have the, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that is willing to stand behind us and empower us to live this new life. We don't live as victims, we live as victors. And because of that, we can change when we need to. We can be encouraged to change when we need to. And not, not flagellate ourselves or whip ourselves. We can just be encouraged and say, hey, but we can actually be effective 
living this new life. And this is how. Thanks, Paul, for helping us to see how to do that. Thank you for correcting me. You know, um, I always have this, I use this image of standing in a crowded bar. You know, the bar is crowded or a nightclub or wherever you've been, you've got this crowded bar and you're standing there and this one guy walks past you all the time and he steps on your toe every time he walks by. And about the fourth or fifth time you think, that's it. And you bop him one. You smack him one. And the guy looks at you stunned and says, what's going on? He keeps standing on my toe. Dude, it's crowded in here. I had no idea. Why didn't you just tell me that? Sometimes we just need to be told, hey, I had no idea that I was heading for... Thank you for telling me, Paul. Thank you for telling me, community. Thank you for teaching me how to live this new life. Let's pray. God, we want to thank you that we can only live this new life because of who you are and what you did for us. Jesus, we're, in a couple of weeks we're going to celebrate Easter again and we're going to have our hearts and our minds and our eyes focused on you, your love for us, the price you paid so that we could be saved, the price you paid so that we could even just even contemplate taking off our old self, being set free from prison and taking those prison clothes off and, and living that new life of freedom. And we recognise that with that new life comes responsibility and we also acknowledge that we don't always live up to that responsibility. Holy Spirit, thank you for living in us and reminding us of that. God, thank you for your grace in allowing us time and time again to reset, to realign and to live this new life that you've called us to live. Thank you that it's not futile at all, that it actually leads to something. It leads to fulfilment you. But it also leads to bringing glory to you in our own lives, but also others seeing you and giving glory to you. Help us to worship you with our lives and our choices and the things that we do. Because it matters. And help us to bring joy to your heart and to have joy in serving you too. In Jesus' name, amen.